0: Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Vice President, drummer, and fellow podcaster, Corby Fine sits down to chat with us about the twists and pivots that comprise his story. A lifelong Toronto native, Corby attended Ryerson University where he studied administration and information management. After graduation, he jumped into the dot-com startup world as a project manager. He would eventually move into sales, focusing on pharmaceuticals with Pfizer. This was at the time when Viagra was arguably worth more than gold and made Pfizer reps the targets of both burglars and thieves. Corby's digital media career started agency side, but his move to Rogers Communications is where he experienced significant career growth. Holding multiple roles at the senior director at VP level. He left Rogers after an opportunity to join CIBC, one of Canada's largest banks, presented itself. But the telco world would come calling once again. Corby was recently appointed VP of Digital Marketing and Sales for Bell. If you're interested in hearing more from Corby, then be sure to check out Fine Tune with Corby Fine, a self produced podcast that offers innovative ideas, opinions, and examples that address a multitude of business challenges. Available at corbyfine.com or wherever
1: you get podcasts. Bell is uh, one of the largest integrated telecommunications companies in Canada. A large mobility business, so putting phones in the hands of consumers and businesses across the country. Uh, fixed line residential services, so your television, your internet, which without which we wouldn't be talking today, home phones, your alarms. And then all kinds of business services, so really enabling organizations, large and small, to uh, have the connectivity that they need to empower their employees and uh, obviously help other businesses uh, uh, work with them. So really a full communications provider. There's also a very large media business, so TV, radio, uh, really creating and providing great entertainment for Canadians coast to coast. So my job at Bell is an interesting one. Um, I have the uh, opportunity and luxury to really try and drive digital experiences through the bell.ca platform uh, as well as through all of the paid digital uh, advertising and media so really trying to bring new customers new prospects into the fold to become bell customers and then also helping existing customers get great service and experience through the digital channel so all of those self-serve fulfilled kind of experiences that you know not everybody wakes up every morning and says i want to you know go to a store or be on hold with a call center for 35 minutes so we try and create the best digital experiences for Canadian consumers and businesses. Corby, I'm really looking forward to this chat, but I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So I was born, raised, and still live in the great city of Toronto. So your whole life's been Toronto then? Yeah, it's, it's been Toronto from the perspective of uh, I've always had a place to live and it's always been home. I have had parts of my career where hey, I've traveled a lot. Um, I've had apartments in other cities for periods of time, depending on the kind of work I was doing, and including one in a town called Bear, Delaware, which doesn't sound very exciting and actually wasn't. But uh, <laughs> you know, lot, lots of different experiences, but Toronto uh, is and uh, has always been home. Talk a little bit about what life was like for you growing up in Toronto. So I had a, an interesting uh, upbringing, a single mom for 12 years of my life, two-bedroom apartment, Blue Cookie Monster shag rug, circa late '70s, early '80s. But it was right in the heart of some really nice communities. And so, while I had a, you know, smaller place to live and and you know a, a maybe not uh, mainstream at the time family structure, I was surrounded by all kinds of different cultures and and opportunities. And. Uh, whether it was Italy winning a World Cup and the streets going crazy or Jewish holidays and people celebrating a little bit of everything. So really just a, a great, great time uh, to, to live in a city like Toronto with the multiculturalism that there there is. I want to talk about your interests and in hobbies, but
0: one thing I find very interesting about you is, and I didn't know this at all, and even working with you, you're a competitive tennis player.
1: Up until the age of 14 or 15 I played uh, in the Ontario Tennis Association which allows you to be ranked um, I was a short guy which at about 12 or 13 started to be a penalty to me and so I like to say my game was very much like uh, a Michael Chang defensive spins you know stay alive and and hit the corners uh, but I just got beat out on uh, power and angle as I got older at which point I decided to teach and spent many summers teaching tennis at Different camps, and then uh, worked as well at Mayfair, uh, helping teach uh, kids of different ages.
0: You're also a drummer. Would you say that you picked up the drums at the same time you were putting down the tennis racket competitively?
1: I've never actually put those two things together, but you're not far off. I picked up my drumsticks at the age of 15. My mother had just remarried, and my stepdad was a guitarist. He's a lawyer, but he was always in bands. Uh, there's a there's a really good story to that one one day, but. He uh, was very you know, encouraging of music, and I was always the fidgety kid with ADD sitting tapping on the desks, and a couple of kids in high school who played bass and guitar, they said, hey, we need a drummer, and you look like you might want to play drums. So I literally rented a kit for a month, and uh, 30 days later said, I want to buy one, and I took some saved up money and bought myself an old kit and literally taught myself how to play from the age of 15.
0: I was also in a band when I was in high school, and I got to know quite a few drummers. And one thing I've noticed about drummers is that they're very territorial about their cymbals. Like it's like Coke and Pepsi; they're not going to budge from one to the other once you find the brand you like. And there's only and the reason I say Coke and Pepsi is because there's really only two brands: Sabian or Zildjian. If I messed up the pronunciation,
1: there, which one are you? There is a third called Paste with an E at the end. P. Oh, geez, okay, I'm
0: learning something.
1: A Lot of well, there's another one. There's Meinl. There's there's a few others, but but. Yeah, Zildjian and Sabian are, are the two predominant manufacturers. Um, I'm a, uh, I am somehow became a Sabian person, and, and I can't really tell you why. Um, I would say it was probably a little less cool than the Zildjian brand at the time, but they are Canadian-made. They're East Coast, um, and I have a, a model that I like, which are these uh, HHX, which are basically HH in drum symbol stands for hand-hammered, which means literally a person is standing there and spinning this metal disc and, and putting intentionally hammering it with a soft hammer to put little rivets in. And it means every symbol every sounds unique. Um Territorial. I think it's just kind of one of those things they do break. They're very expensive and they're really easy to move. So whereas if you have multiple bands playing at a bar, you'll share your kit, the actual drums themselves, because that's a real pain to tear down and, and put up a new kit. And it's not that hard to change your skins if you break them, which you really don't that often, but symbols, yeah, I guess the territorial comes out of the fact that they're easy to move. They're called breakables as part of the the drum kit. And uh, I will say, though, I've definitely let other people use mine.
0: Did you have any influences, anyone you looked up to when you are growing up?
1: You know, I, I kind of have never had that idol or sort of person individually that I've looked up to. Um, I'd say I've just taken a little bit of many, many people uh, from all kinds of areas, whether it's music, sports, business, uh, marketing, uh, people on TV. Um, You know, I'd like to say that, you know, in my heart of hearts, I often wonder why we uh, elevate and emulate so many people because of things like their acting ability, when really, at the end of the day, I'd love to emulate the person who figured out how to do an mRNA vaccine and save us from this COVID thing. So, um, you know, for me, it's a little bit about the best of everyone.
0: That's very true. I mean, there are certain heroes that don't get the press or attention that they deserve. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about your very first job, because you kind of had a litany of them when you were a teenager. We've got paper route. So, could we actually say, and I had a paper route too, growing up? Do you think it's safe to say that you and I both started in media that way?
1: It's it's well put. Um, if that meant getting up early, going to where the drop was, having an exacto knife so you could cut those uh, plastic you know, cable ties that were wrapped around your stacks of papers. And the best was, I remember on the Saturday morning and it was the star that I used to deliver the Saturday morning star, you'd have to assemble. So there'd be in like multiple sections, the flyer section, the sort of meat and potato section, and then the the front page. And you'd have to shove it all. That took so much time. Oh,
0: God did ever. I I delivered the Mississauga news. So thankfully it was free and I didn't have to go collect because you did the Toronto star, right? So you actually had to go and collect from your subscribers. That's right. I'm surprised you knew that. <laughs> yeah, you had to chase them. So mine was free. Did you ever have people chase you and being like, hey, you missed a flyer, like if the Canadian Tire Flyer wasn't in there or something like that? Like I used to get that all the time. It was most, the most frustrating thing ever.
1: I didn't have that mostly because I was delivering probably before they were up. Um, but I always had that fantasy of that uh, John Cusack movie, Better Off Dead where the the paper boy on the bike at every random moment in the movie would just come down screaming, I want my $2. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't seen that movie, it's probably my favorite 80s movie of all time. So it's not a John Hughes film, but it is the best 80s movie of all time.
0: You also did uh, QSR quick service restaurant work at McDonald's at the age of 15. What did you learn about yourself working fast food?
1: I learned that lobby duty sucked, <laughs> which really meant... The job of having to clean a McDonald's restaurant, kudos to people who have to do the kinds of roles that are cleaning up after other people. And I have to tell you, it's, it's not glamorous, but there is something about the feeling at the end of the day, when you realize what you've actually done that says like, wow, I'm, I'm actually proud of it. And so I understand there are all kinds of things that people need to do. Um, I had to clean the grease trap, which is essentially where the runoff oil would go after clean, you know, cooking fries for days on end. And it smelled, it was dirty, it got all over you. But at the end of the day, it was a job that had to be done. And so I think for me, you know, working in a place like McDonald's, the, the rigor of the training, the consistency of the experience they tried to drive, and realizing that sometimes you just have to do stuff that you don't always want to do, but you should still feel proud about it at the end of the day.
0: You also worked at your stepdad's law firm. And you said doing everything and anything. And I want to get a taste of what everything and anything was. Because it sounds like you had some really interesting duties every
1: now and then. So at a law firm, everything and anything means filing, binding, where you cut your fingers on all kinds of paper. uh, All the way through, literally, to having to take papers, documents, and serve them to, uh, the opposing side. And so sometimes having to drop off things to people that didn't exactly want to receive them, whether it was tied to a lawsuit or, uh, we'll, we'll call it some aggressive behavior that would often happen when one party was suing another. So you you learned a lot through that process. So you actually got
0: to serve people like they didn't like your stepdad was like, they'll never see Corby coming. And then you just kind of show up and be like, here you go. And next thing you know, they're being sued or they're served a lawsuit, like, like that
1: kind of work uh generally in that vein so a lot of it, <laughs> that's fantastic uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, uh one party suing the other and uh yeah documents needed to be delivered and uh it was it was interesting not not everybody was happy to see you
0: after high school what brought you to ryerson university and what did you study there
1: so i stayed in toronto uh for a couple of reasons um i had much much younger siblings and and sort of was it a bit of a Different stage in life, and so uh, I did move out of the house, got an apartment, but decided to stay in in town. Uh, Ryerson was a really interesting place for me. I really loved the notion of a smaller university, smaller classes, but much more tactile, hands-on. Um, I always like to understand how things work, not just the the sort of why and the theory behind it. And so I felt that the the kind of classes and programs would be you know uh, appealing to me from that perspective. I studied a program that was called Administration and Information Management. Uh, The degree has actually changed to a BCom and MIS. So kind of like 50% business and 50%, you know, computers and technology right down the middle. And so after graduation, where did you land first? So my first job at a university was implementing CRM systems. So the Vantiv, PeopleSoft, Siebels of the world uh, for a system integrator called Eloyalty. They were a chicago-based nasdaq traded you know software implementation company sort of consultants back in the day and uh there were different projects um in my time there i literally worked on one in canada uh the majority of my work was in the us hence the apartments in places like Bear, bear delaware comet before
0: so when you went down into the us how long were the periods of time that you were there implementing the systems
1: uh, projects ranged anywhere from six weeks to nine months. Uh, the project in Delaware really covered a number of States and that, that was a nine month project. Uh, I would fly down usually Monday to Thursday, come home. Friday was sort of your catch up on personal life, do your laundry, do your expenses, do your you know billing and your hours and your reports and finish up any work from the project uh, prior because you got to remember when you're traveling and you're living in hotels or even an apartment that you have for a, a longer period. There's really not a lot of personal time. I mean, even, you know, in the evenings, you're generally finding something to do tied to the work because of the fact that everybody is, you know, transplanted there for the week. So you hang out with the work people, you wind up doing more work and, and you get your hours in in four days instead of five.
0: Okay. So I want to ask you about the various places you've been to through work. What place surprised you the most? Like you went there going, okay, I'm, it's not gonna be that big of a deal. And you came back going, whoa, okay. This place was a lot better than I thought it would be.
1: I spent a bit of time in, uh, in Texas, um, which, you know, I think depending on the part of Texas you're in, it's very, very different culturally. So, uh, Dallas, not a huge fan, Austin. Awesome. Like just, I, I I really couldn't have described it better than I've heard other people, which is sort of a, a warm and Southern Toronto from the perspective of. A sense of you know music and arts and culture and restaurants and dining and and people walking through the streets just not really worrying and giving a care which is very different than many other places especially in the states so i really like there um i think on the flip side uh (laughs) i would i was a bit surprised about salt lake city utah of all places really an odd town and uh just just felt really weird kind of the vibe was very quiet, very kind of like low key chill. Uh, I, I tried to walk through the, um, the, the main Mormon campus, which led to a whole set of other issues, but, um, <laughs> just, just an odd feel to the city. Like I, I thought it would have been a bit more uh, lively and I found it quite subdued actually.
0: Maybe that's why they kept the jazz name. When the jazz moved from new Orleans to, uh, Utah,
1: new Orleans too. Actually, I, I did get to spend a bit of time there. I actually went to the NBA all-star game in, in new Orleans. And, um, uh, I have to say, I was shocked at how small that place is. Like that is the smallest city I have ever been to. You're you 15 minutes, you're like, wait, I'm out of downtown. Done. Very small city. Um, lively as lively as heck, but uh really, really tiny. It's funny you bring up Austin as
0: one of your favorite places. Everyone I know that goes to Austin falls in love with it. And I love too that you brought up the restaurants because I always ask people, what do you like about Austin? Usually It's either the first or second thing, they say the food. They're like, you got to go there for the food. Almost like Austin is just 100% food tourism.
1: There's a lot of interesting steakhouses, but I think the thing that's most interesting, and I was there uh, two years ago was the last time I was there. The amount of transplanted people from other parts of the States and other parts of the world who have chosen to make Austin their home has really uh, opened up all kinds of different uh, restaurants and food styles. um, uh, Just- Really, an amazing place. That and uh, standing at dusk on their main bridge over the lake, watching you know the million and a half bats that live in the caves fly around—that's uh, that's quite a sight to see as well.
0: What brought you to Company DNA? Did you find the role, or did the role find you?
1: It's a good question because it was so long ago to even try and remember that. But I'm pretty sure that I found the role because of the fact that I was looking around and saying, "Wow, you know the, the dot com boom was on." There were millions of dollars being invested in all these really cool-sounding startups. I'm a young guy. I'm like, what the heck? Why not try and find myself a route or a path into one of these companies? And Company DNA had been funded uh, by a group of investors, including a gentleman named Dennis Benny, who was actually the the developer and founder of, way back in the day, the first fax software, WinFax, and he sold it to... Delrina, I think it was, and semantic, and, and, you know, made a lot of money invested in all these companies. And I said, why, why not take a role? And I had an opportunity uh, to join this company um, as a, a product manager, uh, and it was just a, a, a really timely and, and kind of cool opportunity to take.
0: Take me through what the duties are of a product manager, specifically in that role.
1: Yeah, I, I simplify it by saying, you know, the product management function for me was sitting between the market demand side so your sales and and uh and research side of the business and then the technology and the cto side so how do you interpret what the market needs or is going to need turn those into a series of roadmaps and requirements and then work with the technology team to better define further refine and then ultimately help them code build and then implement that and take it back to the sales force so That really interesting intersection between, you know, understanding the market needs and dynamics, as well as speaking the language of the technology team to be able to help them interpret what the heck they had to build for a living.
0: It literally sounds like you're like an internal diplomat trying to understand what everyone wants and what they need and then trying to get them to talk to each other through you. Would that be a good way of summing it up?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way I run my neighborhood Facebook group, I've had people tell me I should run for, the, uh, for office, but <laughs> maybe that's where it all started. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good way to put it.
0: Okay, so from here, you made the jump to Pfizer. Specifically, you were a sales rep. Before we get further into this role, I mean, notwithstanding your time as a paperboy with the Toronto, uh, the Toronto Star, would you say that this was your first formal sales job?
1: Absolutely. Um, And, you know, the pharma industry from the notion of formal sales, real formal sales, like spin selling training, you know, big uh, quarterly meetings where you would literally simulate your sales pitches in front of videos, consultants, they would bring in real doctors to critique you, like hardcore stuff. Um, And for me, you know, it was it was just an interesting opportunity to get a big brand, get that formal training. Uh, understand how large global organizations worked. I hadn't had that experience, um, and so uh, you know, I, I took a shot. Um, I think the other best part of it, to be blunt, was uh, uh, part of my portfolio of what I was selling in the cardiovascular space was Viagra, and who <laughs> in the world didn't want to sell Viagra?
0: You know, it brings me back to that movie, Love and Other Drugs, with Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal. And when I was doing my due diligence for our talk, I couldn't help but keep thinking of that film when I got to this part. So. How okay have you seen the movie first and foremost? I have, yeah. How much of what Jake
1: Gyllenhaal was doing was relatable to what you were doing in real life? So, first off, there's a reason the US has the highest global drug prices it's because they spend the most money on marketing and entertainment. The rest of the world kind of shut that down. So, um, it's a pretty clean and you know, ethical industry from the perspective of using evidence. To try and get the most out of the prescriptions for your for your for your drug. That said, you know sampling is still a large part, meaning giving physicians samples to then give to their patients to try. And if I tell you that at any one point, I mean, I would have had you know ten 000 to twenty thousand dollars worth of samples in a locker. Um, oh of God, one. that's a lot. Oh yeah, well, and you got to remember, I mean, you know, these things are like fifteen dollars a pill, and a sample pack of four. You know, you had cases of them, like cases. And, you know, true story. There were there were sales reps who worked for a lot of the drug companies who were robbed. I mean, they were held up in their car. Their cars were smashed into uh, their, they were followed into their lockers. So we had as part of our training there, there was like security and self-defense training, like what to do, how to make sure you weren't being followed. Uh, it was a little bit of spy versus spy in there.
0: Oh, my God. That's OK. When you say you
1: had a locker, I guess this was at Pfizer's head office then. Well, no, because you got to remember, you have Salesforce distributed across, you know, the country. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. And so you would literally rent the kind of locker that I used to have, you know, in the storage spaces. But rather than having, you know, my, my stepdad's law firm files when a case was over and I'd as part of my do everything and anything job, go file stuff and, you know, clean up his storage bin. I literally had cases of samples of pharmaceutical products sitting in a locker behind two or three locks in a secured building that I would have to go on, you know, and pick up in advance of uh, some of my doctor appointments.
0: So does that mean when someone would ask you what you did for a living, you would be apprehensive to say that, Hey, I work for Pfizer just for your own personal safety then? Oh, no, it was fun to say I sold drugs (laughs) legally. (laughs) Okay, that's fantastic. What did you learn about, not to jump ahead forward to when your media career and your tech career really picked up, but what did you learn about sales, specifically selling um, drugs? (laughs) I was trying to find the technical
1: term for it. Oh, that is the technical term. Pharmaceutical products. Um, Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, you know... (sighs) I think what I learned the most was you really have to develop relationships with your customers and your clients. And there was one instance where I had a territory of physicians and pharmacists that I would say were much more interested in software technology automating their office, generating operational efficiencies than the average physician. Just based on the kind of volume potential they had, their, you know, their backgrounds where they came from, just really business-minded physicians. And I decided I was going to take advantage of that. And so I put together a symposium where I had different software providers of office, you know, office uh, uh, physician office software. And and at the time, you know, Palm Pilot was big. So, you know, your old PDAs in your hand that had uh, early stage, you know, prescription writing apps and so on and so forth. This is like before the smartphone. And I put together this whole symposium, breakfast and whatever. And I went to the head office and I said, here's an idea. Here's a proposal. I want to fund it. And they said, no. Because the money you're spending isn't explicitly going to the education of our drug. And I, and I said, yeah, but doesn't doing something like this earn me the right to ask for the business? And so I learned two things. I learned one when I told the physicians that I couldn't do it, how disappointed they were, which meant I was actually on the right track. And it also taught me that the industry wasn't really for me because the creativity and how you could deliver your message was essentially stripped because of the regulatory body. And so um, really good learning. But I think the key, again, to summarize is you have to find ways to build relationships and trust with your customers.
0: So you couldn't, you had a very defined script then that you had to stick to when you did your presentation. Like you couldn't be like, you know what, slide three could use this bit of spice and that sort of stuff. Like it was extremely rigid because of, I guess, regulatory reasons.
1: Yeah, it was It was definitely rigid. Um, you know, and I think to my comment earlier, it's a very clean and ethical business. The the creativity in how you could say was a little less stringent than the, what you could say. I mean, there's no question. The script was on the, on the facts. Um, this was a little outside the box because I wasn't even finding a creative way to tell the story of the, of the drug. I was actually trying to create a relationship and, and trust through other mannerisms. So that that's a bit of where the problems lay,
0: which is funny because in media, I find that our clients are very hungry for these thought leadership pieces. Maybe it doesn't, reconcile back to the product or service you're offering, but it's something bigger. Like, I don't know, I'm just going to pull this out of the air, something in and around connected TV and consumption habits about that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because in media, they hunger for that sort of stuff. But I guess in pharmaceuticals, it was like, you're selling drugs and that's it. And make your relationship doing that.
1: Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, listen, the the benefit is incredible. You save lives. I yeah, mean, that's true. You save them either by actually saving them with you know, cholesterol reduction, or you know, preventing heart disease, but you also save them by you know things like Viagra, by actually enabling people to enjoy their lives. And so, um, the mental health aspect and the the sort of you know uh, implications of having certain things in your life that prevent you from enjoying it. And so, you know, in the in in your media uh, example there, I think what's really interesting is if you think about the kinds of relationships that many media company providers, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, even today, other than COVID, would do is you build a relationship, but there's a lot of fun, frivolous entertainment, golf tournaments. In fact, my Facebook reminder was about seven or eight years ago. It was like an IAB golf tournament that I think happened, uh, you know, yesterday, seven years ago or whatever the the number of years was. But nobody talked shop there. Right. So I think there's an interesting opportunity to make sure that in any opportunity that you have as a salesperson and as a recipient of the pitch that you are even if you're mixing it with you know some fun and frivolous that you still do find a way to add value and create that you know real relationship based on the business as well
0: so understanding that your clients really were looking for solutions to just automate their offices is that what drove you to IMS Health because it sounds like that company was solving the problem that your prospects at Pfizer were looking for
1: yeah I really you know loved the healthcare i loved the learning of the science i loved the fact that there was a you know like a tangible benefit at the end of the day when a physician could say like i helped someone i saved someone uh but i was still a bit of a nerd i loved the data the software the technology the the pace of innovation and so ims was a really interesting organization because it brought all of those things together they uh, we're pretty much the only provider of, you know, aggregate Salesforce data, uh, software dashboards, uh, Salesforce effectiveness consulting for the pharma industry. So it was a great way for me to kind of merge both sides of my interest.
0: Elsevier Interactive Solutions. Would you say that this was your first time pivoting fully into media?
1: Yeah. Elsevier uh, was an agency owned by the Reed Elsevier Group. So they're a multi-billion-dollar. Dutch-British company, publicly traded, they pretty much produce every single medical book, journal, uh, uh, you know, nursing, veterinary, physician that are used uh, for educating uh, across the world. So if you go to medical school and you use a medical textbook, it's pretty much owned by them. If you read the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet or any of these global journals where medical uh, information is published, it's probably owned by them. They had diversified and had an agency in Toronto, which was really there to serve pharmaceutical clients and also try and digitize a lot of the, you know, medical content and information to distribute across the world in a in a faster, better, more efficient way. So, um, part of that obviously had to do with media advertising and marketing solutions on behalf of the pharma company. So that that was my first real uh, foray into the space.
0: Would you say that they acted more like, I guess you could say, a greater publishing house, or did they act more like a media agency?
1: Yeah, it was pretty 50-50 when I started, but by the time it was time for me to go, uh, they had essentially pivoted to uh, a company that was really focused on the medical community and publishing and converting their content, and they essentially shut down the professional services side. So it basically became a company that was building portals for their healthcare information to pass on to physicians around the world.
0: So what brought you to Ben Simon Byrne? Did you find the role or did the role find you?
1: I'm pretty sure that it was a recruiter when I think back. Um, You know, I I get a little old and forget some of the details, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, it, it was a really interesting opportunity to kind of step it up and do what I had been doing in a more focused pharma world, but now to take it across industry and as a group account director with, you know, a team of about 25 people it really meant I had an opportunity to do a whole lot of things with a whole lot of companies. And at the time, they were the AOR, uh, uh, integrated AOR for uh, Scotiabank, for Hyundai Automotive, for Loblaws, President's Choice Financial, or President's Choice. Uh, just really good opportunity to work with some you know, really amazing brands. And you were
0: doing this in the pre-programmatic
1: world? I was doing this in the pre-programmatic world. Context is and was king. So that, that is absolutely the space that we were in. Well, in context, it was supposed to be king again, but
0: then Google said, yeah, we're going to keep the cookie around for an extra year.
1: Yeah, but everybody else is killing it. So uh, you got to have a so 66% context, 33%. Well, it depends on your budget allocation. But- <laughs> you got to have a backup plan, that's for sure. And then after Ben Simon Byrne, though,
0: you moved over to Rogers. This is where I got to know you. And you had a number of uh, major roles there, a lot of growth. So why don't you take us through the story? Like, how did you find Rogers? Or did Rogers find you?
1: Uh, no, it was... Uh- a recruiter. I still know her. She's still active in the Toronto market. And she said, hey, Rogers needs a uh, director of digital marketing. I said, what does that mean? (laughs) She said, well, it's in the media business and they need someone to do audience development. So owning the search budget, partnering with all of the publishing radio and TV and sports brands to bring more people to their sites that they could go and monetize it. And I said, that sounds fun. Let's give that a shot. So I came in uh, in January of uh, 09, I think it was. And uh, eight and a half years later, I, I was finally time to leave. But in that time, I think I had four different careers almost inside of that business. Every two years, I, I found a way to, you know, I guess do what Ted Rogers said and and be you know entrepreneurial, but do it within within the business. And so, I started as a you know director of digital marketing. Um, quickly, as you know, your your question earlier was around the pre-programmatic world. Well, quickly identified the fact that the fastest way to grow. Your audiences wasn't actually to go and and put search ads in front of them and, and buy them, but it was actually to partner. And so, wound up building uh, a, a very large ad network and essentially taking our salespeople and turning them into resellers for sports leagues and publishers across uh, mostly North America and the U.S., but even some in in Europe as well. So at one point, you know, the the Rogers Media team through the deals that that my small team did, we were representing and selling, Condé Nast, Meredith, Martha Stewart. Uh, time, Hearst, all four sports leagues at one point. I mean, we had a dream amount of digital inventory, uh, more than anybody could could handle. In fact, so much so that we actually got Google to change some of their uh, global contracts because of the fact that they didn't account for the fact that an, an organization like us could take you know a billion impressions a month out of the market from what they would have otherwise monetized through you know remnant inventory. So, really interesting opportunities. That all just led to the future state, which was. Building out all of the data uh, data platforms for you know Rogers Media uh, to be able to monetize through the programmatic space as a you know a, a seller of, of 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 data and targeting through both the Rogers inventory as well as the the broader programmatic landscape, and then finally uh, my last four years was actually on the corporate side where we took all the learnings of how to build you know customer data profiles and and anonymize the data. And I actually wound up running a a piece of the customer experience strategy and then ultimately, uh, Rogers own, uh, um, digital marketing capabilities. And, And that was just really, really interesting to pivot from the media side to the corporate side.
0: Looking back at your time at Rogers, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite child.
1: What role or what project are you most proud of? So I think, you know, of all the things we did, um, The the most interesting one was really figuring out how to build this, you know, this this customer experience data platform. This thing that we kind of call the UCar, you know, a, a unified customer analytical record. And it really was the enabler of so many parts of the business. So if you can imagine your typical CRM record, you know, in a Salesforce or whatever database you have, it has a name, an address, has a postal code, a phone number, might have a social insurance number. Some other personal information about the products you have and the revenue you're worth to the company. You might even do some modeling and you know uh, put in some predictions of your churn risk or your potential you know growth as a customer. But when you start to layer on all of the really interesting digital markers, you know the the IMEI of your device, the IP address you last came from, the cookie IDs that that get dropped on you from a first party perspective, whether it's an Adobe stack, a Salesforce stack, a Google stack you start to paint a picture that's much broader because now you can understand all of the the clicks, the calls, the the retail visits, the location of the phone, the device with the app on it, uh, the purchases, the research, all of the different touch points. And the best part is is that you can do it whether you're a customer or just a prospect. You don't always need the name and the phone number and the the email address. You can do it all off those anonymous uh, identifiers as well. So putting that together opened up so many possibilities. It allowed us to do things like targeting. It allowed us to do things like better modeling, a churn a probability. It allowed us to do things like do a predictive NPS against the 99% of people that will never really tell you what they think about you as a as a client a, and a, a brand that they work with. So I would say that that enabling capability really was the most uh, interesting thing that that my teams were able to do over my years there.
0: Looking at the different roles and the growth you had at Rogers, what advice would you impart on anyone listening to this who wants to advance their career within their current company? Like, what would you say to them? What should they do next?
1: I've never seen anyone, no matter how smart, how successful, how lucky, how good at what they do, get ahead without an advocate. And by that, I mean, you know, more than a mentor. A mentor helps guide you. They might instill some wisdom. They might teach you a few things. They might slap you on the top of the hand when you do something wrong and help you get out of jail free if it's a you know a bad decision. But an advocate is someone who completely has your back. They're willing to, to go to other people in the organization, executives, human resources. They're willing to say, this person should get more. They should develop. We should in- empower them. We should invest in them. And so... I've seen people who I thought were mediocre, okay, uh, get ahead faster than those who were just you know top 5% because they had somebody advocating for them. And if you're not being talked about, how are you going to get ahead? So I think uh, that's my biggest piece of advice is make sure that you've got an advocate, somebody who's going to speak for you at many, many more tables than you can speak for yourself. I can
0: concur with that. I've had a a couple of jumps in my career internally and even externally too, and it's because I had an advocate. Hell, it's how I landed at the current job I'm at now. But I want to touch on your move to CIBC. So you leave. Is Rogers actually Canada's biggest communications company? Or was it at the time? Depends on the,
1: the metric. And it
0: depends on the metric. Top, no. <laughs> okay, let's let, tell you what. We'll say one of the biggest ones. And then you leave it and you move over to CIBC. What attracted you to moving to one of Canada's biggest banks?
1: Honestly, There was a part of me that wanted to prove that I could. And by that, I mean, I think most people that knew me at the time were like, why are you going to a bank? And I think that's exactly why I went because people questioned it. And it was a little bit about the bank in and of itself and the people that I was going to go work with. You know, I joined CIBC because of the team, you know, the, the person that, that was hiring, uh, my former boss, I was joining because of him and what he was trying to do with the organization, uh, not, not so much because it was a bank. But the challenge of thinking about innovating and transforming the way in which a, a bank operated, I mean, that was, that's meaty. You know that for someone like me, that's, that's a challenge. And when you're comfortable, you've been somewhere for eight or nine years. And this, you know, this mega opportunity to really help a large organization transform itself, do things differently, do things they've never done, do things they didn't even know they had to ask the question on whether or not they could do. That to me
0: was was reason enough. So you were itching for a change at that time, and then it fell into your lap because of a former boss.
1: Um, I was open to the change. Uh, I was a fan of the former CEO at Rogers, who unfortunately moved back to Europe. And so in the time of them trying to figure out what to do in terms of their leadership, uh, I got the call. And so, you know, it was just good timing to to take the call and take the lunch.
0: I mean, from 40,000 feet, biggest difference is working at, say, one of Canada's biggest banks versus a company like Rogers. Like just uh, putting aside the obvious differences between the companies, but just things like culture and what the day-to-day was like and so forth.
1: Telecommunications companies are, are- – Fast-paced, constantly innovating, constantly changing, investing in platforms, software, tools, technologies, network. Customers' demands and needs are changing rapidly. Right, y- y- Nothing you're using that's provided by your, your carrier, whether it's at home or in your pocket, is the same as it was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. But your bank account's pretty much the same. And so the, the, the pace of change, much faster in the carrier's. Uh, comes with some other things like a bit more chaos, a little bit less ability to plan everything to the depth that you want because you're reacting a lot more quickly than you might in a bank, which is, we'll say, where you spend a lot more time upfront planning and being very, very, very cautious. But at the end of the day, what that also means is you don't do as many things. You don't do as many projects. You don't do as many uh, you know, starts and stops and pivots. But the things that you start, you generally finish. Now, it's really a personality thing. You know, are you comfortable and someone who likes to be meticulous and plan and spend a lot of time making sure and delivering on a few things? Or are you someone who likes a bit more of the the fast paced and being comfortable with the fact that you might start some things and, and they may not finish the way you thought because the market's changing so quick that you got to react, right? Those are two of the biggest differences.
0: One of the things you ran when you were at CIBC was Simply Financial. I, correct me if I'm wrong. You probably helped launch it, right?
1: So I joined as Simply Financial was uh, coming to life, uh, rebranded from the former President's Choice Financial relationship. Ah, that that's right. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I I joined. The, the name had been chosen. The brand had started to come to life. And uh, <laughs> they said, hey, we're going to shut down 350 retail kiosks across all the Loblaws stores because we're not in a relationship with him anymore. And oh, yeah, by the way, that accounted for 90% of customer acquisition. And you need to go figure out how to replicate that 100% through digital channel. Game on. So that's kind of when I said. <laughs> oh, no pressure.
0: No pressure and no more budget. <laughs> but does that put even more pressure on you to improve, say, the consumer experience? Because, I mean, for people uh, who are unfamiliar with Simply and are listening, this is a virtual bank. There are no branches. there are no tellers there are no There are no physical representatives for the company. It's literally the website i'd say the app, and then the people at the call center that are really representing or technically the face of the company
1: yeah you you think about how do you then get the feedback when you don't have the human human conversation other than the call center and so we spent a lot of time really focusing on the interpretation of customer surveys, you know, NPS surveys, really doing a lot of work on the text analytics and mining of the conversations. You really need to read into what customers are saying, but you also have to look at what they're doing. And so looking at the journeys, looking at the customer effort of how hard, how long, how frequent it takes to do something, whether it's as simple as checking a balance, you know, how much money do you have uh, in my account? Or something as complex as, you know, depositing, currency conversion, wiring overseas, uh, each and every journey had to be evaluated to to un- identify and understand the pain points and then put initiatives behind weaving out those point pain points to make it as simple as possible and reduce customer effort. So definitely critical, but it's also that because we didn't have as much of a retail presence where you can have those conversations, you had to be really good at interpreting the analytics to figure those things out
0: and after you were done with financial services you moved over to bell which is probably the biggest competitor to rogers and kind of like a homecoming for you would you say that
1: yeah it's uh you know it's an industry as i said i love um i was actually asked recently by by the ceo of bell why bell and part of the answer was exactly that it's you know i i really i really enjoy the pace uh i enjoy the value that you understand, you know, I think back to my pharma days, like I loved the conversation with the doctor of the patient, the benefit, you know, you understood what kind of outcomes you were helping achieve. I, I think about the benefit, like think about the last year, you know, someone posted a meme the other day and it was, imagine the pandemic, if it was 20 years ago, we'd all have like a Nokia flip phone, a hundred minutes of phone, 300 texts. And like, you know, we'd basically be stuck at home with nothing to do. Can you imagine working or going to school 20 years ago in a pandemic like it wouldn't have happened everything just would have shut down remember those big black telephone uh, telephones that had like conference call buttons and like imagine yep, if we're stuck- those yeah h- how could we have worked and gone to school and had our kids educated and kept ourselves entertained so when i think about the benefits of what you know a company like bell can offer uh, i actually get excited about it and so Seeing the the tangibility of what you're delivering to consumers and businesses, um, I I just it's uh, it's just it's fun. I really enjoy it. On top of all this, you are also a fellow podcaster.
0: Tell us how Fine Tune with Corby
1: Fine came about. <laughs> so I was uh, in the transition period of leaving CIBC. The pandemic was uh, a news article, soon to become a lockdown, and. I just felt like I had spent so much time on building my network, on helping people with everything from networking, job hunting, helping vendors find customers, helping customers find vendors, just putting things together like a puzzle. And I just said, hey, you know, this podcast thing sounds interesting. Um, I like to gadget and toy around. Uh, Let's give it a shot. And, um, over the course of about six weeks, I read a lot of stuff. I cold called a few people. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and, uh, yeah, a year and a couple of months later. And, uh, I'm 28 episodes into fine tune with Corby fine. My 29th is about to launch this week. Um, I'm at about 11,000 downloads and it's just been a, a great fun ride.
0: So if you had to sum it up in a couple of sentences, what would you like? What problem are you trying to solve? With fine tune with corby fine to give you an example with media people i'm trying to tell the stories of an industry of storytellers
1: yeah i'm i'm basically trying to say that in everyone's story there's a couple of things that you can learn from it and whether they're an entrepreneur and it's about some of the you know the tips and tricks of how they organize their day or raised money if it's a you know a large organization ceo or executive it might be something with regards to, you know, how to think about team building or, or, or you know, picking an agency. It's really about those two or three things, you know, you, know, you th- that you're going to remember. You know, you think about going to a conference and you sit in a room for an hour and you, you hear two or three people debate on stage or someone does a didactic presentation. What do you remember? Like the golden nugget. Well, I'm just trying to pull those one, two, three golden nuggets out of everybody's story and provide it in a way that says like, Screw everything else. This is all you need to care about. So that's really the focus.
0: Do you remember that moment when you came to it? Because I certainly do with myself. Like where you said to yourself, "Aha! I've got the idea. It's an idea I'm passionate about, and I know I can keep going, episode for episode, after episode on this idea."
1: Yeah, but at the same time, kind of tied to my love of you know things that are constantly evolving and changing, I'm still always questioning myself a little bit of imposter syndrome of can I do this better or different? Is this really working? And And I keep having ideas, but to your point, I kind of, I guess I've honed in and kind of stick to my guns. Um, I do have a few other ideas on mm, how to tweak it, but then I'm like, maybe that's a whole other
0: podcast structure in and (laughs) of itself. If anyone wants to jump on Fine Tune with Corby Fine, where can they listen?
1: Yeah, thank you. It's on uh, every single podcast platform, whether it's uh, Apple, Spotify, uh, really all of them, Google, et cetera. Uh, and uh, it's hosted on my website, which is just corbyfine.com.
0: Corby, this is fantastic. I'm having a great time. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? My favorite part. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Looking back at your career, the campaign you're most proud of.
1: Ooh. Um, so, Ben Simon Burn, we picked up some work from Microsoft, the uh, Online Services Group. Hotmail was our client, and they were trying to sell Hotmail targeting to advertisers. We came up with a, a game. It was kind of like Boggle, where you'd uh, have dice and each die had uh, all the different, each die had six parameters of what you could target with Hotmail, you know, age, gender, career, location, all that. And you'd literally uh, roll them and, and it stayed on the desks of agencies uh, or uh, agency buyers uh, uh, for, for many, many years. And, and we talked about that one. It was a, a physical game to sell a digital property. So I really love that one.
0: Your favorite movie?
1: Ah. Uh, off the side um 12 monkeys bruce willis uh terry uh, gilliam movie i i was so absolutely sure that i missed something that i watched it three times in a row because i i was like there's this there's i missed something there's i i don't get it i get it but i don't get it and i don't trust myself so i'm gonna watch it again and it's just such an incredibly smart movie and if you haven't seen it they did turn it into a TV series. I will admit I never even tried to watch the TV series because I didn't want to ruin the good memories I had of the original. Your favorite video game. Oh, I'm old. So video game to me means many things. (laughs) So old school. I mean, I'm talking like Tandy 1000s, you know, XT processor with a 10 megabyte hard drive, literally Um, like King's Quest and Leisure Suit Larry. And if you don't know what those are, go look them up, especially Leisure Suit Larry. It was hilarious. I used Uh, to play both of them. Okay, well, you're of the right genre. Um, new school. Uh, I, I really like Battlefront, Star Wars Battlefront. I, I just have this affinity to the Star Wars franchise, and uh, I do like the first person shooters. So, um, like Battlefront, to me is 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 just entertaining.
0: If Hollywood were to make a movie based
1: on your life story, who would you want to play you? <laughs> so, growing up, I used to look like Paul McCartney. At, so much so that at a talent show at camp one summer, uh, I actually took the fake toy wood piano and did a, a lip sync. Um, uh, the piano was being used in the uh, season's summer play, which was uh, uh, Peanuts, uh, you know, Charlie Brown. And so I took Linus's piano and played it. Um, I then developed a look in high school where everybody said I looked like Fred Savage from the Wonder Years. Um, but my grandmother always said I look like George Clooney to her. So I'm going to go with George Clooney. <laughs> okay. My follow-up to that,
0: if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it?
1: So the last few conferences I spoke at before the uh, the lockdown, I kind of like to always express my life story as the fact that I'm probably the only person that has both sold Viagra and run a two million customer digital bank, <laughs> and and so I I try and instill that in everyone as the notion of everyone is a segment of one. You're mm. an individual. You're unique, and no one's going to have the exact backstory or personality or interests, or beliefs, or values as you. And so I would say it would be something like Segment of One. Your favorite book? I don't read a lot, but when I do read, it's like way out there. I love astrophysics and space, and so anything by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Your favorite song? So I have emotional connections to certain music. Um, I find that 90s grunge kind of vibe is really... It's probably because it's when I started playing drums that, that I have the most emotional connections. And I, it's, believe it or not, I have emotional connections to like Motley Crue songs. It's really random. Um, but Black Hole Sun uh, is probably uh, by Soundgarden the, the one song that um, I just, I hear it and I just like everything tones out. So I'll go with Black Hole Sun.
0: To throw this out there, Pretty Noose by uh, Soundgarden. One of their most underrated songs, in my opinion. Doesn't get the credit it deserves.
1: Yep, yep.
0: Great band. The best advice you have ever received.
1: At Rogers, one of my uh, one of my uh, former bosses said to me at one point, and he was the one who actually was my advocate to help me get my my first VP title. And he pulled me in his office one day and he said, "So you're kind of at the point in your career where you need to make a decision." I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, at the end of, at the end of the day, there's kind of two paths that that most people go from an executive perspective. One is you become that technical expert, that person who no matter." you know, what company needs to do that thing, they're going to call on you because you're the best at doing it. You're the best software engineer building maps. You're the you're the best project manager. You're the best, you know, finance person. And you're probably going to have small teams dedicated to that function, but you're always going to be in demand for that function. The flip side is you become a more generalist leader, right? Someone who can scale teams, be adaptable. They can trust you to throw you into different scenarios and you'll figure out how to do it. You know, people will follow you. Where do you want to go? <laughs> and I said, "Why can't you be both? But you can be, but it's really, really hard. And so, you know, letting go of some of the technical expertise to become a scalable leader, or, you know taking the chance that an organization may not, you know want to consistently promote you and give you bigger titles if you're not as versatile to them as maybe other people, that was a, a big conversation, And where we netted out was, it is actually possible to do both. It's actually possible to maintain the knowledge integrity and expertise in certain areas but at the same time be a leader be a motivator be a coach and a mentor and so you know i think collectively he asked me not so much to point me in, into an answer or paint me in a corner but to make me think about how to grow your own career and and for me it was really about finding a balance between the two
0: if you could go back in time and give your younger self advice what would you say
1: uh, absolutely um take more risks uh you know, I, I didn't live in another city. Uh, I didn't move around. I didn't, I, I mean, yeah, sure. Going to a Pfizer is, maybe it's a risk. Maybe it's not, you know, it was outside my box. It wasn't anything I'd ever done. But, you know, I think take more risks in life, you know, take chances, do things that you you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And even if it's not what you wanted, the learnings of what you experience through that process, uh, there's just, there's so much to learn in, in the world. It's a, It's a huge place and, you know, don't always play it safe. Take some chances. My signature closing question If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? That's the easiest question of the night. I'd be on tour in big stadiums post COVID playing drums. (laughs) Throw it to your band for a second, because I mean, you've
0: got to be itching to get out there and start playing again once this is all over.
1: Yeah. So we've started up again uh, playing uh, outdoors, uh, jamming outdoors. Uh, So, you know, we'll play outside of each other's uh, houses and people will just sit, but we're actually planning some uh, outdoor concerts again. Uh, we we're supposed to do one, uh, very shortly and hopefully weather holds, but, uh, yeah, last summer, I think we probably did about, uh, six or eight summer outdoor concerts and anywhere from 20 to 150 people would show up, bring their chairs and some beverages and their kids. And, you know, the streets just get, get filled and, uh, we rotate different people's houses. I like to call it the COVID street tour, uh, of 2020, <laughs> and we're going to reincarnate that this year. And yeah, we're, uh, the Franks and beans, um, We have a great Instagram. If anybody's interested, it's the underscore Franks underscore and underscore beans, the Franks and beans with underscores. And uh, yeah, we're pretty funky and uh, we have a lot of fun.
0: Corby, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.